The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Even if you have not seen The Lord of the Rings, any of the films, or read the books, like my wife, I threw under the bus there, I'm sorry about that. You will still feel the force of a scene from the third movie, The Return of the King. The scene is set at an encampment the night before a huge battle that will determine the fate of all of Middle-earth. And here, an army from the men of Rohan prepare for the biggest battle of their lives. A battle against a ruthless and powerful enemy. A battle where they're greatly outnumbered. And the scene begins with Eowyn, the goddaughter of King Theon of Rohan, approaching a man named Aragorn. Aragorn, a character with humble beginnings, has become a leader among these men and is actually the heir to the throne of Gondor, the greatest realm of men. And Eowyn is distraught. She's distraught because she just found out that Aragorn is leaving. She comes up to him and she says, Why are you doing this? The war lies to the east. You can't leave. You can't abandon the men on the eve of battle. Eowyn is afraid. And she's heartbroken because, well, she's been crushing the entire movie. But she's afraid because she sees his leaving as a bad thing. She doesn't understand that Aragorn has been given a mission, a mission that only he can accomplish, a, a mission that he has to complete or there will be no victory for men. There will be no peace. But as he leaves, the men say, what's happening? Where is he going? Why does he leave us on the eve of battle? And another responds, he leaves because there's no hope. He leaves because there's no hope. He knows we're going to lose. On the eve of battle, where they are greatly outnumbered, their leader is leaving them. And they're crippled with fear, hopelessness, and doubts. Fear, hopelessness, and doubts. Our passage today, the passage that was read, is part of what scholars will call Jesus' farewell discourse. The public ministry of Jesus has come to an end. And on the eve of the hour, the hour of the suffering of Jesus, he gathers his disciples together to address them privately. Uh, The scene is like a king that gathers his officers, or a father gathering his family on the eve of his death to give them instructions and to help them after he departs. And the disciples are afraid because in chapter, first, uh, chapter 13, for the first time in the Gospel of John, the disciples were told that they will be unable to find or follow Jesus. He will be absent from them. And although, as we saw last week, he promises that he will not abandon them, 
that he's going, but he's also coming to them in a new way through the Holy Spirit. They don't get it. They're confused. They're afraid. The tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, it's reaching ahead. And the disciples are freaking out because they feel like their leader is abandoning them on the eve of battle. And I think it's hard for us to feel the weight of this scene because we have a bird's eye view, don't we? We want to look at these disciples and say, dude, just calm down. Trust in Jesus. It's going to be okay. Yet, when it comes to our own lives, we don't have the luxury of a bird's eye view, do we? And more times than not, we look like the disciples. Anxious, fearful, looking at Jesus and saying, we've left everything to follow you, and you're not coming through. We've left everything to follow you, and you're leaving. You're leaving. And I don't know about you, but the night before I was going to be humiliated and brutally crucified, I'd be thinking about myself. It becomes clear that the disciples here are thinking about themselves. But Jesus is not thinking about himself. Jesus is thinking about his disciples. He wants to comfort his disciples. Jesus wants to calm his disciples' fears by revealing to them that his going away is not a bad thing. And he wants to do the same for you this morning. He wants to calm your fears by reminding you that his going away is not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's something that should calm our fears. Something that should calm our anxiety. All the anxiety and the fear that we have. And so in our time today, I want us to look at three reasons why his going away is good news. Three reasons from the text. Good news that should calm our fears. Good news that we need to meditate on this morning. And we need to meditate on this morning. The first is that his going away is not a bad thing because he leaves his disciples his peace. His going away is not a bad thing because he leaves his disciples his peace. Look at uh, verse 27 with me in chapter 14. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The first thing that I want us to see from this verse is that Christ's gift of peace is not a wish. His gift of peace is not a wish. Uh, last summer, I got married, and I was so honored that people came from all over to celebrate with Jordan and I. And as many people left, uh, knowing that they may never see me again, uh, they wished me a long and happy marriage. A long and happy marriage, which was really nice. And I believe that they were sincere. 
And I'm very thankful for their wishes. But the reality is, they don't have the power to make that wish a reality. They don't have the power to make that wish a reality. Their kind wishes are exactly that. Wishes. Humanity may wish peace for others in a farewell, sincerely, superficially, but always without the ability to give what is wished for the other. Always without the ability to give it. But Jesus' peace, his peace is not a wish. We don't have the power to give the peace that we want others to have. But Jesus does. But Jesus does. And for his disciple, he, disciples, he promises them peace. And his, his promise is more than a wish. And he goes to the cross to secure that promise, to make good on that promise. But you see, we need to remind ourselves this morning that this gift of peace is not a gift of good circumstances or a gift of a good environment. I don't, I don't know about you, but for me, many times when I think about having peace, my mind goes to a yoga class in a Zen garden. Maybe that sounds like hell for some of you. Or maybe sitting on the beach with nobody talking to me. Ah, completely by myself. A peaceful environment. A peaceful circumstance. Away from any conflict. Away from any pain or suffering. Now, I'm not saying these are bad or denying their calming effect in any way. But Jesus does not send his disciples to a Zen garden, but to take up their cross, a life of self-denial and suffering. And so his peace cannot be the gift of escaping the world and its problems because he sends them directly into the mess and the chaos. This gift of peace, his peace would not be a gift, as Paul says, that transcends all understanding if it was from circumstances or environment because we get that peace right? We can grasp how the beach is peaceful. And look at the life of Jesus. He experienced temptation, rejection, loneliness, poverty, mourning, torture, and imprisonment. He's on his way to the cross. No, not a life we would characterize as one of deep peace. Because we're looking at circumstances. We're looking at one's environment. No, Christ's peace does not come from circumstance. Where does it come from? His eternal communion with the Father. That's where his peace comes from. His eternal, unbroken union with the Father by the Holy Spirit. So when Christ gives his gift of peace and a farewell to his disciples, it's not a wish. It's not a gift of a life free from suffering and bad circumstances, but it's the gift of a, the eternal, secu uh, secure communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the gift of communion with God, unbroken, eternal communion with God. Listen to the words of one theologian this morning. I hope it gives you peace. 
Jesus Christ is a never-ending fountain of blessing to us. And he is the source of a blessing. One so amazing that it would be blasphemous to suggest if it were not true. In our union with Christ, in our communion with Christ, our personal relationship with Jesus, in our union with Christ, the only begotten Son of God, we participate in what is most precious to him. What is most precious to him? What is that source of peace? His relationship with his Father. His relationship with his Father. We are in communion with Christ, adopted into the family of God. We become the children, the sons and the daughters of the most high God, now in forever by the Holy Spirit. An eternal communion of peace. A.W. Tozer said that the most important thing about you is what you think of when you think of God. The most important thing about you is what you think of when you think of God. And a gift that is so amazing, a gift that brings peace, is the gift that we, in Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, cry out, Abba, Father. See God as Father. Know God as Father. Not as a dictator, not as a distant judge, but as a loving Father. A loving Father. And then finally, the last thing. Jesus' promise of peace is a promise of his presence. Yes, Jesus is leaving them, but he's told his disciples that he will not leave them as orphans. He's leaving, but he's coming by the Holy Spirit. He will be present to his disciples, manifesting himself to them in a new way through the Holy Spirit. It's been said in a tongue-in-cheek way that the Holy Spirit is the most humble person of the Trinity. Well, what is meant by that? It's simply to acknowledge that the work of the Spirit is to make much of Jesus. It's to make much of the Father. And last week, We saw the Spirit reveals Christ to us by revealing to us the truth that Jesus spoke, the truth of who He is, His words that comfort and transform. He makes Christ present to us. That is His work. So, I think we need to think about the Holy Spirit. And if you think that the Holy Spirit is only present and working during the bridge of your favorite worship song, and you need a larger vision of the Holy Spirit. A larger vision of the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Spirit is constantly at work in those who believe. Constantly. When we feel it, yes. But also when we don't. Uniting us to the Son and the Father, transforming us into the image of Jesus, bringing us into an eternal fellowship with God. Now and forever, that is the work that the Spirit is doing right now in this very moment. And even when you're not thinking about it, Christ's presence, a promise, a promise of peace, of well-being, of wholeness. He's going away, but it's not bad. He leaves, he gives, he promises his peace. The second reason 
Second reason that I want us to look at that Jesus going away is not a bad thing is that because he's going to the Father. He's going to the Father. Look at verse 28 with me. Verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. What? Yeah, here is a statement from Jesus that sounds odd at first glance and raises some questions. Uh, what does it mean, or what does Jesus mean when he says the Father is greater than I? And why should this bring joy to the disciples? It's puzzling. Well, first, what this doesn't mean. Uh, the Father is greater than I should not be interpreted interpreted like the ancient heretics, the Arians, who argued that the Son was less than the Father in essence or being. I had a seminary professor that said, part of your discipleship is to know your heretics. I got flashcards with heretics on them. I bring them out at parties sometimes. It's, it goes over really well. No, we, we can't interpret it like the Arians. Um, he's not saying that he's less with God. That would be crazy. Throughout John's gospel, from the, very first, from the very first verses on, the equality of the Father and the Son has been stressed. It's been put before us. 1-1, one, one, 118, 5, 16-18, 10-30, 20, 28, just a few. And emphasize that Jesus is fully God, fully man. That he is equal in being, in essence, with the Father. Well, okay, Brad. So if, if it's not a statement about the essence or the being of the Father, then the essence of the being of the Father and the Son, excuse me, then what is Jesus referring to? Well, we have to put it in context. Think with me for a second. In the Gospel of John, we see Jesus comes from the Father and returns to the Father. He's sent by the Father, does the work of the Father, speaks the words of the Father, receives his commission to give life and to judge from the Father, has life in himself as the Father, has it because the Father has given it to him, as well as all things to him. And these statements, you're still with me, <laughs> cannot be turned around. Uh, the Father is not sent by the Son the Father does not receive a commission from the Son, so on and, and so forth. Okay? So, two observations then for us this morning as we think through these things. First, here the Father is not greater in essence, but greater in this context only as the sender who has authority over the one sent on mission. Okay? Here the Father is not greater in essence, but greater in this context only as the sender who has authority over the one sent on mission. And secondly, 
I think we want to say that this relationship with the Father, the Son, that we see in John, that we see without the Scriptures, reveals to us the triune God. It reveals to us that the Father and the Son are equal in being and yet distinct in person. Equal in being and distinct in person. And this distinction has an order to it, an order that Nicene Creed, a creed that we affirm here at Shades Valley, a, a creed speaks to when it says that Jesus is eternally begotten from the Father. Eternally from the Father. The descending of the Son and salvation has its ground in the eternal being of God. All right, those of you that have checked out, now would be the appropriate time to come back into the sermon. Why should the disciples rejoice? You say, I'm bored, Brad, I'm not rejoicing. Why should the disciples rejoice? Because Jesus is sent into the world by the Father, has walked in obedience to the Father, and now is returning to the Father. And his return to the Father means that he has faithfully accomplished the work, the mission that has been given to him. And what is the mission that has been given to him? It's your salvation. It's your salvation. It's the, it's the salvation of his disciples. And they should rejoice because... If Jesus does not go to the cross, if he does not fight for their peace, if he does not return to the Father, then we have no hope. Do we believe that? No hope. No other hope. No peace. No communion with God. And if his disciples truly trusted in Jesus, they would rejoice because he's returning to the Father victorious. He's returning to the sphere that he belongs, to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. He returns to the place where there's no humiliation or rejection, where the Father is undiminished in glory, where the creatures and the angels, they worship day and night. They bow down before the throne. Heaven, where the Father and the Son and the Spirit are worshipped and glorified continually. And here it's like the, he's saying to the disciples, you want me to stay in the world. You, you want to go to Starbucks and have coffee with me. I know. But it's better that I go. It's better that I go to the Father because I go there to prepare a place for you. I go so that I may take you with me to glory and delight and bliss forevermore in communion with God, full peace. You should rejoice. Because that is why I return to the Father. And that is your future. He's going to the Father. It's not a bad thing, church. Yes, we can't sit down and have coffee with Jesus at Starbucks, but it's, it's not a bad thing. It's a reason to rejoice. All right. The third and final reason that Jesus is going away is not a bad thing is because he leaves to fight a battle. And his victory is certain. He leaves to fight a battle and his victory is certain. He's not abandoning his soldiers. 
Look at verse 29 with me. Verse 29-31. And now I have told you before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. I did not like hymns as a child. I wouldn't even stand and sing. (laughs) It was an embarrassment to my parents. But as I have grown older, I have come to appreciate the practice of reflecting and thinking deeply about their words. It's been a great source of peace, of comfort, and encouragement. And the hymn, The Rock of Ages, has a beautiful verse that speaks to the state of humanity and our desperate need for rescue. What's that verse? How's it go? It goes like this. Should my tears forever flow, sorrow, remorse, should my zeal no longer know, will to obey, never tiring, all for sin could not atone, both for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone, be of sin the double cure, save me from its guilt and power. Save me from sin's guilt and power. Thou must save, and thou alone. Guilt. Who will save us from sin's guilt? When I was in high school, uh, there were a lot of Christian rock bands that I loved. I went to see them in concert, many of them several times. Bands like DC Talk, POD, yes, they're a Christian band, Pillar, Demon Hunter. (laughs) Thank you for that. One not so hardcore, Shane and Shane. (laughs) Not in the same category. But, confession this morning, I, I was a tenor one in my high school men's glee club. And man, can Shane and Shane do high harmony. And their acoustic worship and their high harmony had a mesmerizing effect on me. I went to see them in concert, and I got their CD, CD, a disc that has music on it. I I got it and would put it into my car, and there was one song in particular that I would listen to over and over and over again. I listened to this song hundreds of times. And mostly with tears in my eyes. It was a song titled, Embracing Accusation. Embracing Accusation. And in the song, Satan, the devil, the ruler of this world, is doing his work of accusing on the people of God. So the song goes, I hear him say, Cursed are the ones that can't abide. He's right. 
If the penalty of sin is death, then death is mine. I hear him say, cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. He's right. And listening to this song over and over again, I just heard feelings and thoughts that I knew to be true put to words. I was guilty. Guilty of contributing to the brokenness in the world that I hated so much. And my offense was not just against creation, but the creator. And not just some time in the past, but ongoing. <laughs> ongoing. I told my testimony like it was some time in the past, but the reality was it was ongoing. And I knew these words to be true. As C.S. Lewis said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms. He stands accused, guilty. Who will save us from this guilt, from this responsible guilt? The verse in the Rock of Ages goes, Who will save me from its guilt, sin's guilt, and its power? It's guilt and its power. As I meditated on this, I came to realize that the picture that Scripture paints of the world outside of Christ is absolutely horrifying. Humanity is part of a kingdom. Will you think about it with me? Visualize it with me? A kingdom of darkness, where humans are slaves to the tyrannical and oppressive ruler of this world. And this ruler delights in hate, destruction, chaos, death. And for these slaves, there is no hope of escape. There is no rescue in and of themselves. And the longer that humanity is enslaved, the more they come to love what is enslaving them. The more they come to love what is oppressing them. I, I don't know if you like zombie shows and movies or if you think they're stupid, <laughs> but another reality of this kingdom that Paul reveals in Ephesians 2 is that it's a zombie land. It's the walking dead. It's, it's the walking dead. And the scriptures reveal that this world is not filled with mostly good people that need some help, but the guilty in need of atonement, slaves who need rescuing, the dead who need to be raised to life, who will save us from sin's guilt and power? Who will save us from this tyrant, from this ruler? And Jesus here reveals that the ruler of this world, the ruler that is oppressing this world, is coming at him with everything at his disposal. Betrayal, denial, violence, injustice, and death. And with the death of Jesus on the cross, it's going to appear to the disciples that he is lost, that the forces of evil have conquered, that those who betrayed Jesus have won, and that he was powerless to do anything about it. But disciples, hear these words. The ruler of this world 
has no claim on Jesus. The accuser may be able to rightly accuse you and I, but he cannot accuse Jesus. He has no accusation against Jesus. For Jesus, as we've seen throughout John, has walked in loving obedience to his Father. And because of his faithfulness, any accusation that the enemy has to throw against the people of God can in the end only reveal to us the character of God, his love, his grace, and his mercy. For in him, there is no accusation against us that can stand. Martin Luther said, when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made a satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, I shall be also. There is no accusation, church. He has no claim on Jesus. He has no power over Jesus. Jesus is not a slave in the kingdom of darkness. He's not guilty. He is light and life. He is the creator. As Augustine declares, the whole world from the heights of the sky, even to the depths of the earth, is subject to the creator, not to the deserter. To the savior, not to the slayer. To the deliverer, not to the subjugator. To the teacher, not to the deceiver. At the cross, in a seeming defeat, of Jesus, the evil prince is conquered by the king of kings who will rescue his people and reign over every inch of creation. Every inch of creation. When you scroll through social media or turn on the news, you may be quickly overwhelmed with the brokenness in this world and you may turn it off because it's too much for you to handle. And I get it. I do it as well. But God does not need to turn on the news. He does not need to open up his laptop. He sees it all. I want us to dwell on that for a second. He sees it all. All of the injustice. All of the abuse. All of it. He sees it all. But the cross, the mission that Jesus goes on, reveals that God has not left the world to itself, but has sent his Son, who is powerful enough not to just wish world peace, but to bring it to the entire cosmos. Isaiah in the psalm said that peace would be a sign of the messianic age when Israel's king would defeat her enemies, establish his throne, and rule forever, and the unthinkable has happened. Christ has defeated his people's enemies, not through military might, but through a cross. A cross that ultimately reveals his power over evil. That day, evil was judged. There, we were saved from sin's power. We were rescued from our enslavement. And so today, we are a people that live in the already not yet. Today, we are a people that live in the already not yet. Christ has defeated your enemies on the cross, securing your future. Your enemies are on their way out, but they are not going down without a fight. 
And while we experience the blessing of salvation now, we are forgiven now, we have communion with God now, we have new life in Christ now, we are one body now, Jesus is king now, we wait. We wait, church. We wait for the day when evil is fully removed and the victory of Jesus and his death and resurrection is fully seen and experienced for any of our enemies, any of the enemies that would threaten God's peace and shalom have been removed. They've been removed. And that day is certain. That day is certain. That's what Jesus wants his disciples to know as he leaves them. The victory is certain. But the road to victory, the road to glory, was was paved with suffering for Jesus. And that road will be paved with suffering for you and I, for those that follow him, for those that are called to take up their cross. But this suffering does not mean defeat. And our suffering in the end can only show the world that God, that Jesus is God, excuse me, and that he's king, and that he's king. But to go on this road of suffering knowing that the victory is certain will take faith. That's what Jesus gives his disciples in this last verse. That's what he leaves with him, faith. A faith whose power is in its object. A faith that will empower them to go into the world of evil to do battle, not with weapons, but with sacrificial love. He gives them a faith that will allow them to see victory and defeat. Church, Jesus has gone to the Father. He's gone to the Father. Praise God, for we will be there with him. Amen.